welcome to The Practice of Theology. My name is Tyler Kirkpatrick, and in addition to hosting this podcast, I serve as one of the pastors of Cross Point Church in Columbus, Georgia. The Practice of Theology exists to help the local church engage theology on a deeper level and learn how it applies to daily life. Today, we have the privilege to enter into a conversation with Dr. Andreas Kostenberger to discuss a biblical theology of family. Dr. Kostenberger is research professor in New Testament and biblical theology and director of the Center for Biblical Studies at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City, Missouri. He is also the founder of Biblical Foundations, an organization devoted to encouraging a return to the biblical foundations in the home, the church, and society. Andreas is a leading evangelical scholar and prolific author. He has authored, edited, or translated close to 50 books, including God, Marriage, and Family, A Theology of John's Gospel, several series on New Testament Greek and biblical theology, and commentaries on the Gospel of John and First and Second Timothy and Titus. He also serves as editor of the Journal of the Evangelical Theological Society. To find out more about Andreas, you can check out his website at biblicalfoundations.org and find him on Twitter at A. Kostenberger. I highly recommend visiting the Biblical Foundations website and taking advantage of the vast resources available to you there. It's an honor to have Andreas Kostenberger on the podcast, and I pray this discussion helps you to better understand God's design and intention for the family as you seek to bring glory to His name. Dr. Kostenberger, thank you so much for giving us a bit of your time. I know that you're on sabbatical right now, and uh, I, I just want to thank you very much for uh, coming onto the podcast and talking to us a bit today about family. Oh, yeah. One of my favorite topics. Thanks so much for having me, Tyler. I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think uh, there, there probably wouldn't be a more appropriate way to start a conversation like this than to have you tell us a bit about yourself uh, and about your family. And then maybe after that, uh, I know you've done quite a bit of work regarding what the Bible says about family. So could you maybe tell us uh, a bit about the publications you've done and some of the resources you offer on this topic? Sounds great, Todd. I'll be glad to. Um, well, my wife and I, uh, my wife, by the way, is Canadian. Uh, and of course, I, I'm a native Austrian. Uh, mm. We've been married for um, uh, over 30 years, 31 years. We have uh, four children, uh, two girls and two boys. And both girls are married uh, to a wonderful husband. And yeah, we love our family so much. It's, uh, you know, a lot of work uh, raising children, but, but it's just a great uh, joy and privilege. Yeah, amen. I've written a, a book called God, Marriage, and Family uh, with my former colleague, uh, David Jones. And uh, I know that some have used uh, an abridgment of that, uh, which is simply called uh, Marriage and the Family in uh, premarital counseling with, with young couples. Mm, um, mm -hmm. And um, also my wife and I together uh, have uh, written a book called God's Design for Man and Woman, which is a survey of the biblical teaching on manhood and womanhood from Genesis mm. to Revelation uh, just a few years ago. And more recently, uh, my wife and I have uh, also written a book on parenting uh, called Equipping for Life, a guide for new, aspiring, and struggling parents, mm. which is also available in an abridged form as Parenting Essentials uh, in nine yeah. short uh, chapters. Um, and finally, uh, if anybody is interested, they can go, uh, you know, simply to my website, which is biblicalfoundations.org, and 
and click on topics on the upper left and then uh, they will see uh, a whole you know topic marriage and family and that's mm -hmm. where i've gathered uh, an abundance of resources on this topic and including you know talks i've given even entire courses and and articles and, and so forth and I would just echo, uh, not only is there a, a wealth of knowledge there for the topic of family, uh, parenting, um, but I must say, when I got on your website, I think it's been some years back, actually, that I ventured there, mm -hmm. you have an extensive catalog of helpful and very accessible resources on there, uh, things that you've written, like you said, videos. Um, so I would encourage people uh, to go um, seek out that website. Can you tell us the website one more time? Yeah, it's uh, biblicalfoundations.org. Mm -hmm. And and go there and be helped by the wealth of resources that uh, Dr. Kostenberger has um, so graciously given to us and provided for us along a lot of topics, but in particular, uh, our conversation today, the biblical understanding of family. So thank you for sharing that. Thank you for letting us have a, a little picture of your family and some of the work that you have done. And so uh, let's go ahead and dig uh, right into this topic. Mm -hmm. um, where is the concept of family revealed in Scripture, and how is it defined? Yeah, you know, um, it's uh, an interesting question, actually, because, uh, you know, when I first dug into that topic, I was surprised to find that, you know, the English uh, word family is actually uh, not that common in Scripture. Uh, mm. You do uh, find it in Ephesians 3.15, though. That's probably the, the, the most well-known passage, uh, part of Paul's prayer, uh, where Paul uh, speaks about God from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Mm. And, you know, for the Greek scholars out there, the, 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 the Greek word is patria, you know, from the word mm. for father. Uh, and in that reference in Ephesians 3.15 is one of, of only three references in the New Testament where that word is used. And, uh, you know, if you're curious, the other two, uh, one is in Luke chapter 2, verse 4, the, the, the birth narrative of Jesus, mm -hmm. where Luke says that uh, at the birth of Jesus, uh, Joseph was of the family, or as it's often translated, the lineage of David. So yeah. they're referring to a whole, you know, string of generations. And then uh, the other passage also in Luke's writings in Acts 3.25, where Luke quotes Peter uh, citing God's promise to Abraham that in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So that mm -hmm. is a fascinating and really important uh, reference to family in the plural there, because you see how ultimately, you know, it's, it's not even just individuals, it's families who are blessed uh, in the seed of David, uh, in the Lord Jesus yeah. Christ. So so yep. there's even a, uh, you know, a, a direct reference there to to Jesus and, and how families are blessed in him. Uh, but, you know, otherwise, in the Old Testament, the Bible speaks more of larger social units uh, such mm. as clans or tribes or or extended families and interestingly kind of like in the greek the hebrew doesn't actually have a term for family uh, the term that's often used is the father's house or yeah. in the hebrew you know beit ab that is a compound where children uh, would settle uh, you know 
uh, on their father's uh, property or estate along with their spouses. And, um, and then in the New Testament, uh, in addition to, uh, you know, those three instances of the, of the word uh, for family, we also see those household codes, you know, or, or yeah. house tables uh, in books like Ephesians or Colossians. And as you know, typically there, they're addressed to uh, initially husband and wife or, you know, father and mother, uh, to children, and often also uh, aging parents such as widows and uh, even household servants. So clearly there, mm -hmm. you see a sense that the family is, you know, grounded in the uh, what today we might call nuclear family, but yeah. it is larger than that and includes anybody who's uh, living in the same household. So, uh, you know, as, as you would guess, there's a certain cultural ele element involved here. And uh, while the core family consists of parents and children, uh, other close relatives are often included in the family as well, which is a little different, you know, from the West where we typically just live together as nuclear families made up solely of parents and children. Mm -hmm. But, you know, there are some cultures, right? In other cultures, uh, people still have a larger concept of family, uh, including the extended family and close relatives and their spouses. So, right. um, you know, as I mentioned, there's a certain cultural element in the de definition of family. Uh, but ultimately, as Ephesians 3 states, God is the one who instituted the family in the first place, right? He is the father for whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, thank you for that. That That's very thorough and I think very helpful to kind of, because, because you, you're right, you don't just have this uh, definitive statement in Genesis 1 where all of a sudden you understand what family is. Yeah. And even too, contextually, we understand what family, at least in terms of what it physically looks like, differently because uh my family is me my yeah. wife and our four boys right and we live 12 hours from <laughs> our closest uh blood yeah. relatives um yeah. and i know many brothers and sisters in uganda where they live with their husbands yeah. or their wives and their brothers and their brother's wives or their <laughs> wives and their wives <laughs> so you know exactly. um and so it, it is it is played out differently um but yeah, at the end there, uh, that, that that was a very helpful way to kind of think through and define the family as something instituted by the Lord and defined by God. Yeah. So here's a question, uh, kind of a follow-up to this. Uh, is what you've just laid out for us, is, is that just one of many ways that we can think about or define family? Um, or is the Bible actually, or does the Bible actually give a definitive word on what the family is? Or um, do we have the freedom to understand it as something that's organic and it changes and progresses with uh, the times or cultures that we live in? Yeah, so that's a great uh, kind of follow-up to what we were just talking about. Um, and, you know, I think, as I said, uh, it, it, it's one of those things where you have a biblical concept where you can't just simply do a kind of a word study. You know, the word family is right. one might uh, imagine and, 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 and it just kind of jumps right out. At you, uh, in in God, marriage, and family, uh, we have two entire chapters devoted to the family: one on the Old and one on the New Testament. And there, mm. uh, we define family as follows. And I think that'll be a helpful, um, you know, 
starting point for us to to to, to look at what what the Bible says the family is uh, mm, right. according to God's design, and and there we see that primarily the family is one man and one woman united in marriage, uh, and then we add barring the death of a spouse because you might have uh, you know a widow or widower uh, plus normally. Uh, and we see normally because sometimes you do have a couple not being able to conceive children, normally natural right. or adopted children, and then secondarily, any other persons related by blood. So uh, there are several uh, you know, points there in, in carefully nuancing and crafting that definition. Uh, of course, it's grounded in the marriage, uh, covenant marriage of, of one man and, and one woman. Uh, lifelong uh, covenant marriage, uh, and then uh, typically children, uh, which would include both biological and adopted children, mm. and then you have this secondary sense, as as we talked about uh, a minute ago, uh, that that in a broader sense uh, we would still talk about family, right? Uh, uncles and aunts and anybody else who's who's uh, related uh, to us, uh, you know, other close relatives. Right. Thank you um, for that answer. It's, it's very helpful, I think, uh, just to to understand um, what the family is, but also the, the fact that the family is not always exactly what our family may look like. Um, there's a broader biblical definition yeah. that allows for a lot of different contexts. Um, and so I think that's helpful always for us to remember uh, that our context does not dictate scripture, Scripture is definitive in our context. Mm -hmm. uh, so in um, Genesis uh, chapter 1, verse 28, uh, this is right after God has created Adam and Eve, uh, male and female. In uh, verse 28 says, And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth uh, and subdue it. This is what I think we typically refer to as the creation mandate. Mm -hmm. uh, but if God calls us to be fruitful and multiply, why do we actually need a family yeah. to accomplish this task? What role does the family mm -hmm. play in fulfilling this mandate? Yeah, and that's a great question. I think anybody who's listening, they, they probably will uh, think about, you know, some alternative ways in which people have recently started defining family. And so even, you know, our discussion just a minute ago uh, on the definition of family uh, it includes certain things, but but also it excludes uh, other, you know, contemporary, uh, you know, alleged definitions of family. So I think yes. in, in this case, you know, uh, the question is, you know, why do we need a male-female married couple to be fruitful and multiply? Why not some other form of human relationship, whether, you know, outside of marriage or same-sex relationship or polygamous or, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think that's a very timely, you know, an extremely relevant question. And uh, right, right. Know, who would have thought uh, even just a few years ago that, that people would massively question the binary uh, creation order of, of, you know, what's so clearly taught in Genesis 1 that God created uh, humanity male and female uh, but as we've seen, just in the last maybe five years or so, I mean, this has been massively, uh, you know, attacked uh, in, uh, at least by a vocal minority in our culture. Uh, so, 
uh, as I just said, the, the Bible is very clear that God made humanity male and female in, in Genesis mm -hmm. 1, verses 26 through 28, and that he uh, created lifelong uh, monogamous marriage between one man and one woman. So I think clearly there may be those in the culture who seek to redefine uh, you know, marriage, but at the very least, they should uh, be honest and, and acknowledge that this is not the biblical definition. So uh, yeah. nobody should uh, claim biblical warrant for alternative definitions. Of course, uh, unbelieving humanity, uh, you know, even though they will be uh, held to account for, uh, you know, what they believe and, and practice, uh, if it is contrary to God's design, but uh, they, they're free to to enter into other social forms of arrangements. Uh, but clearly, this is you know, if it deviates from the biblical definitions that we've just the definition that we've just given, uh, they would need to acknowledge, and and we would certainly agree this is no longer uh, the biblical definition. Um, you know, when you look in the in the Genesis creation narrative uh chapter two and then also uh jesus very helpfully reaffirmed god's plan in matthew 19 that's one of my mm -hmm. wife's favorite passages where he uh, speaks to his uh, opponents and he says have you not read she loves that you know it's kind of like yeah. they should have known they should have read their yeah. bibles that he who created yep. them from the beginning made them male and female and said Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and, and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So we see in both Testaments, there's a clear affirmation of monogamous marriage as God's plan uh, by which then a man and a woman, uh, you know, uh, have children and start a family. And, you know, as an aside, sometimes people are saying, well, Jesus never really clearly uh, spoke uh, up in favor of monogamous marriage and and never addressed yeah. the issue of same-sex marriage. Well, yeah. uh, I think clearly in Matthew 19, uh, he, he does, you know, even though the Absolutely. question that was posed to him was about divorce, but along the way, he reaffirmed that marriage is between one man and one woman. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and two, just even saying, I think his retort to us would be, if, if I may, <laughs> have you not read your Bible? Yeah. <laughs> um, it seems that the way in which God has created us, male and female, and the design that he has for us is actually informative for how we are to um, create families and then to function in those families. And so that design is is not something that he did and stepped away from, but that is his intention from the moment he did it till the time that the Lord returns. Yeah, that's right. That's why my wife and I, you know, named our book God's Design for Man and Woman, just to, to yes. right at the outset, make it very clear that, that uh, you know, there's one plan. And even after the fall, you know, as we talk about in the book, uh, God never goes back on that original plan. Uh, and even though there are some negative results from the fall that directly affect uh, marriage and you see, you know, divorces happening, uh, Mm. Uh, adultery, polygamy, and so forth, uh, God's plan never changes. And even in the Old Testament, you know, you see that the the normative uh, plan remains uh, faithful marriage. Uh, 
you see the song of solomon you see the proverbs 31 woman so yeah. so god's plan you know uh, never changes and then as we've seen jesus also affirms uh you know god's plan by quoting from genesis 2. so uh yep. you know there's no other plan there's no plan b uh yeah god's creation order uh, uh you know stands forever yeah yeah amen and and praise god that it does uh you mentioned um opposition that we face today in terms of the biblical understanding of the family mm -hmm. and i mean uh, certainly in our time and, and and of course in history in church history um the family has has always been devalued genesis mm -hmm. chapter 3 began the devaluing of god's design mm -hmm. for uh man and woman and the way in which they would come together uh, of course that's true but we can only really speak to our experience and our experience right now is is a massive um, attack on a biblical understanding of mm -hmm. the family. Could you help us think through some of the major negative effects that stem from the devaluing uh, of the traditional family as we understand it? Yeah, I think that's, you know, uh, definitely worth pondering. Um, you know, even though we we don't want to be too negative, but I mean, clearly, uh, you know, we should expect that, that if we don't... Um, follow God's plan, uh, there's going to be negative consequences. And in many ways, mm, that will right. reinforce the, the right. beauty and the wisdom and the goodness of God's design. And that, you know, really, sometimes people maybe seem to convey the sense that, you know, why would they want to uh, do something that maybe is not good for them or they, find, they found a better way? And, you know, my answer to them is, listen, uh, you know, you're not just doing God or me or Christians a favor. If you take a close look at God's design, you're really ultimately doing yourself a huge favor because, you know, as one songwriter once said, you know, the only thing you're missing is a heartache, you know? Right. Uh, so, well, there are many negative effects uh, to your question uh, that come from devaluing, you know, marriage and, and family in our culture. Uh, some are theological related to God and, you know, uh, us being created in his image and others are social or economic. And, you know, I'm interested in both. My first degree is actually in social and economic sciences. Oh, uh, wonderful. Uh, you know, I was, I was not a Christian for most of that first degree, mm. but, 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 but mm. then clearly, uh, you know, after my conversion, I, I became even more keenly interested in the theological uh, negative effect. So as a, as a biblical scholar, let me just start with with the negative theological effects. And of course, the primary uh, negative effect of devaluing the biblical family is that God is dishonored. You know, before we turn to effects on us as humans, I think as Christians, we ought to be concerned for God's glory and God's honor. Uh, and so sadly, God is, is dishonored when his design mm -hmm. is ignored or in disregarded, or even, you know, there's outright rebellion against it. Uh, you know, I sometimes am I'm invited to, to preach on, on biblical manhood and womanhood, and, and uh, mm -hmm. I, I typically land on, on Romans chapter 1, because uh, yeah, yeah. it's just such a powerful passage that talks about the 
the fundamental rebellion of humanity against God and the consequences there. And so if I may just mm. briefly, you know, Romans 1, 18 says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For although they mm. knew God, uh, and I might add, and they knew God's design for marriage and family, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became yeah. futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And so there's a sense where uh, immorality uh, clouds your thinking. You can't think as clearly anymore, and mm. and your heart also is is polluted with with uh, thinking that is not uh, biblical. Uh, I think what's even more convicting in that passage I just read is that. Uh, it says they didn't honor him as God or give thanks to him. So uh, one of the negative effects is that people are not thankful for yeah. the blessing that comes through marriage and family for because it's really a precious gift from God. And so ultimately, among other things, uh, one of the negative effects is ingratitude, you know, and there right. should be praise to God for for the gift of marriage and family. And then as the passage continues, uh, it clearly speaks to the results of disregarding God's plan. It says, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, to dishonorable passions, for the women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. And then it, it concludes, God gave him up to a debased mind filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, and all sorts of evil. So, mm -hmm. you know, rather than saying it in my own words, I mean, here we have 2,000 years ago, just an incredibly timeless verdict on those who disregard God's design for marriage and family. And that's, yeah, I think, exactly yeah. what we see in our society today. There's there's a lack of permanence in relationships. There's immorality. People are hurt. Uh, there, people are under God's judgment, and society suffers as well. Uh, you know, in terms of social costs, moral, financial costs, and you know, there's just single out one such negative effect: uh, divorce. Mm. Uh, I come from a divorced family myself, and and I think there are significant negative effects both on the divorced couple. And on the children of divorce, that often takes ye take years to heal. Um, yeah. And then more broadly, as you know, there's increasing gender confusion in our culture where young yeah, people yeah. are no longer secure in knowing uh, they are a young man or woman and they're unsure about their gender identity. They've, they've simply lost touch with the way in which God created them and therefore also with the purpose for which he created them. So... Yeah. I think here's a great opportunity for us to witness to God's good, wise, and beautiful design for men and women, both as married couples and families, and also as we disciple and mentor men and women to grow in Christ and uh, fulfill their God-given purpose. Yeah, yeah, amen, amen. Uh, and thank you, too. I mean, uh, when, when, when you were reading that um, passage in Romans 1, I was just kind of thinking, and, and as you were speaking, uh, this idea of um, withholding thanks to the Lord, 
um, I think we could pretty easily say that, uh, and we, we want to be careful that getting married and having children is not what defines it, but a desire to uh, be married, a desire for children, a desire to live as God's design actually is a means whereby the creation worships the creator and not ourselves. Yeah, that's right. I, I love this passage in Ephesians 1.10 that talks about uh, God summing up all things, uniting all things in Christ. And then as you read later in Ephesians 5, part of that purpose is marriage, uh, yeah. especially between or, um, you know, two spirit-filled people, you know, a spirit-filled husband and a spirit-filled yep. uh, wife. And so, uh, you know, sometimes, you know, people talk about let's focus on the family or let's let's try to have a good marriage. But I think what Paul is saying as well, no, let's not focus on marriage. <laughs> let's focus on God as a married right. couple and as a family. Let's together serve him and understand that that we're just living. We're blessed people. You know, we are this is this is the way we can glorify God. We can give thanks right. to him. We can honor him. And also we can witness to him. You know, I mean my wife and I sometimes talk about marriage as a witnessing tool that we can yeah, create an appetite, yeah. uh, you know, in our families where, in our case, we're the only Christians in our families. And, and, and so you see yeah, that, yeah. Uh, you know, we, we can witness to, to, to God's uh, goodness and, 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 and wisdom in, in living out the biblical design and hopefully draw others closer to him. Yeah, yeah. A amen, amen. Um, I'm 31 years old. Uh, my parents have been divorced for 30 years of my life. Um, and, and, and I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, and, and too, I mean, sometimes these um, consequences are certainly, I think, unintended. Mm -hmm. But it is true that uh, the, the, the devaluing of family, whether it is um, in outright rejection of the Lord or it's just a, a moment of selfishness, whatever it is, um, these effects are lasting. Um, but... The one uh, thing that has been so helpful for me in healing from the divorce of my parents and just and just the struggles, I'm not saying I had a hard, difficult life. I did not, uh, but was getting married and having children myself and experiencing what I feel like I missed out on and the blessings that the Lord uh, has brought into my life through my wife and through my children and, and through struggling uh, in our household together as we pursue the Lord and as my wife and I display the Lord to our young children. Uh, and, and what a joy it is to, to be able to do that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, so as we read the Bible, um, one of the things I think we, um, we, we may not understand this uh, particularly in terms of our theology, but as we just read through Scripture, we understand uh, that the Bible is very covenantal. Uh, there are these major kind of peaks in Scripture, and a lot of them revolve around the covenants that God makes with um, His people and himself. Uh, one of the questions that I have for you is a biblical understanding of family. Is that an important theological idea or concept to understand the covenantal nature of the Bible? Or, or do those things even relate to one another at all? Do they go hand in hand? Yeah, I mean, that's another great and very important question. So important that in, in God, marriage and family, uh, we devote an entire chapter to that. So if people want more, you know, than what we can cover in the uh, short time we have together, they're certainly welcome to look at the chapter four in that book. But, you know, again, it's a little bit like our discussion uh, earlier in our conversation on family. 
right. if you strictly, you know, uh, run a word study of, say, covenant in relation to marriage, uh, you don't come up completely empty, but kind of like yeah. the other, you know, three terms of family. There's only two references in the Old Testament where you have uh, marriage mentioned in connection with covenant. So in any case, that's probably a good place to start. Uh, there's uh, Proverbs 2.17, uh, which speaks of the adulterous woman, and it says mm -hmm. there, who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God, uh, you know, which probably refers there to the marriage covenant that she's breaking, you know, as, as an adulterous uh, woman. And then I think an even clearer passage in, in Malachi 2.14, it says, because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you've been faithless, again, in the context of divorce here, though she's your companion mm. and your wife by covenant. Uh, so especially in this uh, second passage, we do, uh, I think, clearly see the understanding of marriage as a covenant. Uh, right. And of course, uh, this understanding is implicit, you know, as early as, as Genesis 2. Now, uh, in the Bible, covenant essentially means sacred contract or uh, an agreement in which God is either a party directly or a witness. Uh, and clearly in the creation narrative, we see marriage, as we've discussed, is, is God's idea, it's God's plan. He created mm -hmm. the man and the woman for monogamous lifelong marriage. We see God bringing the woman to the man, and, and the man is delighted. This is not flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone. So you have some sort of a, see the first marriage, uh, you know, the wedding ceremony. Uh, and then Moses writes, a man will leave his parents, be united to his wife. So marriage is created and ordained by God. And and a man and a woman uh, pledge to be faithful to each other until death uh, before God is a witness. Now, mm. I personally think that God is not directly a party to human marriage. In other words, marriage is not between three uh, you know, persons, God, the husband, and the wife. It's between two humans, uh, you know, a man and a woman. Right, but God right. is the one who ordained marriage, and uh, he's a witness to the marriage. You know, it's entered into before him. And so God keeps husband and wife accountable to the promises they've made to each other before him. Uh, but, you know, it's possible to break that covenant, uh, such as when one of the partners commits adultery. We know that in the Old Testament, there was a very strict uh, punishment for uh, for adultery, uh, even stoning, even though uh, typically that was not necessarily carried out. But but that, that right, just right. underscores the the severity of of breaking the marriage covenant. Um, and we see in the New Testament that Jesus, uh, you know, allows for divorce in in uh, many belief uh, in, in in cases uh, where there is uh, adultery on part of one of the two uh, marriage partners. So mm -hmm. uh, clearly, uh, the covenantal nature of marriage uh, makes uh, marriage a very sacred uh, contract or agreement that that a man and a woman enter into before God, and and uh, and they're certainly uh, held accountable if they violate that covenant. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, and I. Um I've done a few weddings, and uh, one of the things that we uh, indicate by our presence at a wedding 
is that we are standing as a witness Mm -hmm. between the covenant relationship between this husband and this wife, and God stands as a witness as well in that union. Um, Yeah, so thank you for uh, clarifying that and helping us to understand that better. So I think a question that a lot of us have, so when we read through the Old Testament in particular, I think a lot of us, we look at things like God driving out the Canaanites um, and and seeing kind of a, a, a total destruction of a people. Um, we see these types of things and we kind of sometimes think, you know, I believe the Bible. I believe everything that's here, but I kind of don't understand what's happening here. Uh, when we think about the family, um, we get to someone like Solomon. Mm-hmm. And King Solomon is a phenomenal king. Uh, his wisdom is outmatched. Um, his his wealth, his riches, everything that he does for Israel is, is just really largely phenomenal. Of course, he has some failures. But one of the things about Solomon is he is said to have a thousand wives. Uh, and so what do we make of Solomon and others mm-hmm. um, when we go into the Old Testament and we see what seems to be uh, somewhat common patterns of polygamy. W- what are we to make of those things? Yeah, you know, uh, on a personal note, I've been reading through the Old Testament with with one of my sons lately, and you know, mm, starting Genesis, we're at the end of Psalms right now. But you know, reading <sighs> through the historical narratives, uh, I was struck. You know, even after covering that topic in God, Marriage, and Family, just how many times more than I remembered. Uh, polygamy is mentioned, and uh, you know, I think as you hinted at, there's not always a clear indication that that polygamy is wrong right there in that narrative. So I think right, right. What what helps me understand is that because the Bible is a canon, it's a it's a library of books that that kind of hangs together. Uh, you know, clearly when you start out reading Genesis one and two, uh, you know that God's plan is not polygamy. You know, so uh, on a on a broad storyline level, I mean, it clearly starts out with monogamy as as God's plan, um, and we've already talked about you know Genesis two and so forth. So there's no doubt mm-hmm. in Scripture that God's plan is is monogamy, not polygamy, and I think the readers are supposed to just kind of keep that in mind as they read through mm-hmm. the chapters following Genesis three. So. Uh, Specifically, you have that underlying assumption throughout the Old Testament that that uh, monogamy is God's plan. Uh, mm-hmm. but, but then we do see, as you mentioned, polygamy enter the world already in chapter 4 of Genesis. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, just very briefly, uh, I think polygyny would be the technical term. Uh, you know, P-O-L-Y-G-Y-N-Y, which is the practice of a man taking multiple wives. Yeah, and the corresponding term would be polyandry. You know, the the practice mm-hmm. of a woman taking multiple husbands, which was extremely rare. So typically, yeah, right. uh, you know, picky point when we talk about polygamy, meaning multiple marriages, we're usually really thinking about polygyny, the practice of a man taking more than one wife, uh, yeah. as in the case of Solomon. You know, many right. wives. Uh, and I know it seems confusing that Solomon, who supposedly was the wisest man on earth, you know, ever lived, uh, you know, so egregiously violated uh, God's plan in this case, especially yeah. kind of in his latter years. I think the reason why polygamy is common in the Old Testament is probably for the same reason that, say, divorce is quite common, which is because of human sin. Uh, we see in the case of divorce, Deuteronomy 24, uh, legislates divorce, but as Jesus 
made clear, not because God condones divorce, but because of our hardness of heart. Uh, and so right. at least God is, is trying to minimize the damage caused by the people who are victimized by that. Uh, mm -hmm. In the case of polygamy, we do often see negative effects in the narrative. You know, you might see jealousy uh, between wives. Uh, you might see, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, uh, rivalry. Uh, you know, you you think about, say, Sarah and Hagar, or yeah, or yeah. you know, other like uh, Jacob's wives and so forth. So, so there are narrative indications that that uh, that polygamy is 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 not ideal, and there's negative consequences. So, um, I think the widespread uh, polygamy in the Old Testament just shows how far humanity had fallen from God's ideal at that point after the fall. And the reason why God didn't, you know, sanction it more severely, maybe because he was focused on, on his plan of redemption in the Messiah, because he knew that nothing less would really help people live their lives in, in keeping with his design. So uh, I'm not saying God completely overlooked it, but, but, but he understood that, that uh, you know, fallen humanity uh, in their own strength was going to be unable to to live out God's design, you know, the way He created it and and, and yeah, the way it, yeah. it continued, at least in its ideal form. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, I I, I heard a um, I cannot I can't remember who the theologian was, but they were having a debate uh, on the topic of um, same sex individuals. And whether you can live in um, loving monogamous unions mm. uh, and and still be um, a Christian, and uh, these these this pastor and this theologian they were they were disagreeing and they were kind, and one of the questions came up: um, Well, then why does God allow things like uh, polygamy to happen? And this theologian, um, uh, a scholar in his own right, simply looked at him and said, "Well." That's actually one of the things that convinces me of the truthfulness and reliability of Scripture is that God doesn't take out all of the things that are dissatisfying to us. He leaves them in because they actually elevate point two and reveal His grace and mercy to an undeserving sinful people. Uh, and so I think, you know, whenever you're mentioning the fact that in, in some of these instances as you're reading, it doesn't seem to be like, a, like a, just a clear indictment against this. Um, you, you do, as you're reading, and you mentioned the whole canon of Scripture, as you're reading this whole story and as it unfolds, um, by the time you get to Jesus, you're just like, oh, quite yeah. literally, thank God. Uh, thank yeah. God for this Savior. Yeah, uh, there's a certain progression in Scripture, you know? And, yes. And uh, clearly, uh, now we need to think about not so much the Old Testament, but we need to think of life in Christ, uh, in the Spirit. And we've give, been given, you know, redemption and and uh, just the indwelling Holy Spirit. And so, in that sense, of course, God's expectations for us are going to yeah. be higher uh, because yeah. we have all those resources for living holy lives. Right, right, Amen, and praise God for that grace to us. Yeah. So there's this uh, there's this moment in uh, Matthew chapter 22 where the Sadducees are coming up to Jesus and and they're and they're really talking about the resurrection 
uh, and and of course they want to um, they want to expose Jesus for who he really is. They yeah. they want to they want to trump him, trick him, whatever it is right. they're trying to do. They're a bunch of buffoons, but they do have a really good question. And uh, the question is, okay, well, let's say uh, a man dies and his wife marries his brother, and let's say that happens five or six times. Uh, okay, Jesus, uh, if the family is so important and it is the union of a man and a woman, when they get to heaven, whose wife will she be? And Jesus goes on to tell us, well, in heaven, there will be no need for a husband and a wife to be united as they were on earth. So here's a question though. Mm. If marriage isn't eternal, then what is the ultimate purpose of this? Why are we doing this? Why are we struggling? Why are we fighting for our marriages? Why are we having the difficult conversations? Why are we um, confronting and being confronted by our believing uh, friends? Why are we doing all of this? Yeah, I, I, I love, you know, the, uh, the, that original story that you just cited, you know, uh, where the Sadducees are trying to, you know, make Jesus, quite frankly, look ridiculous. Right. <laughs> How, when it's all said and done, you know, they look kind of ridiculous, you know, and then Jesus does it. He dismantles the argument just so lovingly and so gently. Um, but, you know, of course, in their case, they only believed in the first five books of the Bible, and they didn't think that resurrection was mentioned there, and so they believe, right. didn't believe in the resurrection. And right. so they concoct this, this I think, hypothetical scenario. I, I don't know that that was a real story, because that'd be unlikely yeah, that yeah. that would happen, you know, like you said, five, six, seven times in a row. Yep. Um, but, but just to show that Jesus' teaching was just ridiculous, because in essence, they argued he teaches polygamy, right, uh, in heaven. Right. So there's going to be right. multiple marriages in heaven. And, of course, that totally contradicted what we just talked about in our previous question, that God's plan is right. for monogamous marriage. Uh, and, and I think in God's providence, we owe the fair, it to the Sadducees that that's the one time Jesus commented on the fact that in, marriage, in, in heaven there will be no marriage, but we'll all be like, like the angels uh, in heaven, which if mm. we didn't have that snippet, right, that Jesus mentioned almost kind of casually, maybe our theology of marriage would look a little bit differently than it does, yeah. you know? Yeah. Uh, but but the larger question that you raised, you know, so like if, if family is not eternal, then, you know, what's the ultimate purpose? I think it's actually a, right. an intriguing one and a, and a very complex one. And those of us who are, happily married i mean we maybe deep down inside wish that jesus you know words were not true at that point right yeah absolutely um but you know in terms of uh, possible answer to this uh we see that uh, in genesis 1 god created man and woman in his image and in his likeness so there's a sense in which creation in god's image makes us like god and and of course theologians over the centuries have discussed at length, you know, what creation God's image yeah. means. And I think one of the things, if you read Genesis 1 very carefully, you see that there's a few times there's actually a plural used for God. You know, it says, God said, let us make man in our image. And so there's just a hint that God is a unity in plurality. And so yeah. we see that just like God, who as we know now is a trinity, you know, three in one. And so there's love and unity 
you know, among the three persons of the Godhead, but yet they're one God. So we see that in mm. marriage, husband and wife are two separate, distinct individuals, and yet they they're united as one. And you know, having been married uh, for thirty years and having seen older couples, you see, in many ways, you know, they've become so much like each other. In some ways, they're mm. acting in tandem. One could fin finish, you know, the other person's sentences. So yeah. it, it's a beautiful thing, you know, that you have at that oneness and yet you know you still have two uh two people so i think it's a spiritual truth you know you can't logically uh, it, it uh, explain it it transcends logic it, it obviously right. transcends you know math it <laughs> one doesn't equal two much yeah. less three <laughs> right. but i think yeah, on, yeah. as a spiritual principle it's true uh, it's what paul in ephesians 5 calls a mystery you know that of two uh, becoming one. Of course, he was talking about uh, the church, where uh, Christ is the head and the church is his body, uh, and 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 you have Christ and the church being one, just like in marriage. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. we can, I think, in marriage, we can get a taste of what it means for two persons to be to be united in love and even to to procreate children. So I think. That's at the heart of it, that that we are, in a sense, like God in that he's given us the ability to uh, to create children uh, mm. as we become one flesh through sexual intercourse and then, uh, you know, give birth to to a family that's the visible expression right, of, right. of the love between a man and a woman. And uh, right. I'm sorry if that's a little bit complex but 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 there's some deep theology involved here uh and you know it's it's sometimes hard to explain the trinity but but there's a sense in which um yeah it's a mystery and and it's it's true and 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 those of us who are married you know and have a family we experience it we're really taken into the the life of the godhead by uh um, yeah by being married and having children it's it's just a wonderful privilege, and I'm I'm just so deeply grateful for it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and it's too. I, I, I did not um, really think about the Trinity when I um, thought of this question. To be mm -hmm. honest with you, mm -hmm. um, but you know, it is really interesting as you look at uh, God's act of creation and asking the question, "Well, why did God do this?" Well, the the first answer yeah. is we have to understand He did not have to. It was not out of need. It was not out of lack. And it was not because he needed um, a man and a woman to fulfill some sort of relationship within himself as the Godhead. And so, you know, as you were mentioning the Trinity, I'm like, well, man, what if when we get to heaven, a part of our ability to have relationship is to experience God in the way that he experiences himself, mm. that he has no need outside of this relationship with himself as the the godhead three and one and uh to have a bit of that um as our experience for all of eternity it's it's unimaginable uh to ex to, to think yeah, about experiencing it's, it's maybe god in our devotions we can you know prayerfully reflect on it but mm. it almost exceeds our comprehension uh, yeah, absolutely you know we, one more thought there you know I, I think we know the genesis one passage which talks about mm. uh god creating humanity in his image but a passage that I discovered more recently that's tucked away a little bit later in Genesis, uh, Genesis 5, 
is, is I think, very intriguing. And, you know, it says there, uh, this is the book of the generations of Adam. And then it says, when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. So that's, you know, a, mm. a back reference to Genesis 1. But then he continues to say, male and female, he created them and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. And then it says, when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered his son, and here it comes, in his own likeness after his yeah. image and named him Seth. So you see, uh, just like God fathered humanity in his image, Adam fathered his son in his own image, in his own yeah. likeness. And so I think it's not even just the connection that you and I are drawing kind of implicitly there in right. Genesis 5, uh, you know, Moses makes it explicit and he says that through marriage and procreation, like I said, we can enter into the experience of, of you know, producing offspring in the likeness of, of God and, mm. and really also in the likeness of ourselves, right? And the Bible, of course, says, you know, like mother, like daughter, like uh, father, like son. So um, it's, it's just a, a striking connection between creation and then, yeah. you know, the family being God's vehicle of procreation, you know, to be fruitful and to multiply and that, that how that relates to, to being God and, and God being creator. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and I mean, it, it does seem to speak to the fact that having children uh, really is a way of subduing the earth. I mean, we are, yep. um, in a sense, under creators. We continue God's Absolutely. act of creation as we uh, marry and procreate. Um, yeah, what a, I, I don't know how many times I've read the Bible, but you uh, reading that, I was like, no way, <laughs> right there. Um, how, yeah, how wonderful. Incredible. Uh, so there are um, there there are no doubt people listening, um, and, and you and I have already mentioned how we come from divorced families. Uh, there are the, 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 there's absolutely no doubt that there's someone who comes from a broken home, or maybe they currently live in a broken home, mm -hmm. and, and of course maybe it's because of uh, past personal sin, maybe it's because of sin against them through abandonment or or whatever it is, and, and there's a whole host of other reasons. Um, what would you say to those people? Yeah, I mean, like you said, um, you know, it's it's obviously hard to generalize. There may be many reasons why right. a family breaks up. And, you know, especially we may either be the victims of, of you know, the sin of others, uh, or we may be guilty of, of, of wronging other people. And, and uh, I'm saying that at the outset because I feel like sometimes – uh, we we're not careful enough to make that distinction, you know, and and so if if somebody tells me they they've been divorced, you know, I, I guess that doesn't really tell me very much, you know. You you need to ask, well, you know, what happened, and and you know, uh, uh, was that person the victim of divorce, or were they actually guilty of of you know victimizing another person? And and, and I right, think, right. Uh, biblically, those two situations uh, need to be treated. Uh, you know, rather differently, but uh, my yeah. experience has been, and, and maybe yours is similar. You know, uh, if if you're in a broken home, God will become even more important to you uh, mm. because you will come to know Him as your loving heavenly Father, who will will never wrong you, will never abuse you, and and if it's hard for you to trust another human being, you know, you you can always trust God and and trust yourself. Mm to him 
And mm. also, you will appreciate the unconditional love of Jesus probably even more and depend on him and on the, you know, the healing power of the Holy Spirit uh, to heal some of those wounds that uh, were inflicted on you. And, you know, I'm the first to acknowledge that, you know, when I was dealing with my parents' divorce, I realized in some ways, even my parents were victims and, and, and had a difficult past. And it's sometimes hard to, to see that others, too, are not just intentionally hurting other people, but they, they're wounded people themselves. So I think we all need God's mm, grace. Right. Uh, so my, you know, my, my conclusion is simply, you know, if you're in a broken home, uh, you know, cling to Jesus and, and, and trust in him. And, and he is able to deliver you even from whatever negative uh, environment you're currently still in. Uh, he'll be able to heal your hurts, uh, even though it may take time and may take other uh, people to help you. Uh, and he will provide for you in every way. Um, he can introduce you to, to uh, loving relationships. Uh, you know, he can uh, introduce you to a loving community, which we call the church, and uh, right, pastors yeah, who yeah. care for you spiritually, uh, yeah. and he will make you part of his family, uh, brothers and sisters in Christ. So uh, there's just incredible hope uh, in, in Jesus, especially when it comes to marriage and family. Amen, amen. Uh, Dr. Kostenberger, uh, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for this fruitful and encouraging conversation. And uh, not only do I um, hope, I know that it will be an encouragement to someone. And uh, just thank you for your final remarks. Uh, how, how very kind and gracious of you. And so, uh, again, thank you so much for having this conversation with us and helping us think well through this topic of family. Thank you, Tyler. I really enjoyed it. And I, like you, I hope it, it's going to be helpful for those who are listening. Yeah, amen. Thank you.